This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today, a compare and contrast of political chaos besetting both the United Kingdom and Italy. Does Italy still do better political chaos than anyone else? And is it just because they've had more practice? Also ahead, talk of a prisoner swap between Russia and Ukraine as President Vladimir Putin of the former prepares to meet President Volodymyr Zelensky of the latter for the first time. Is a thawing of relations really possible? Plus... Music was tribal. Bands and their fans were gangs. People that liked Blur were dicks. People that liked Suede, Ponces. And people that liked Pulp were artists or something equally unforgivably fay. American music simply didn't exist anymore for a 15-year-old in Britain. It's 25 years since Oasis's debut album, Definitely Maybe, made a generation of British rock fans pick a team. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. And welcome to Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm joined, first of all, by Monocle's culture editor, Chiara Ramella, Monocle 24's executive editor, Tom Edwards, and Monocle's assistant books editor, Milken Charchoglian. Now, we will start with Italy, because for much of the post-World War II period, Italy and the United Kingdom have seemed polar opposites in the context of European politics. Italy was often perceived as an eternal chaotic tumult, amid which no citizen could consume their morning espresso entirely certain that they would not be called upon to serve as Prime Minister before sundown, whereas the UK, when it deigned to change at all, did so stolidly, slowly and sensibly. The joke as we go to air may be on Britain, while both countries are presently undergoing sensational meltdowns of their politics. Italy is at least used to it. Um, Chiara, first of all, we will start with Italy, and you are appearing here, as you often do, as a a spokesperson for that entire country. Um, Basically, and try to keep it as short as you reasonably can. What has been going on this week? Wow, okay. <laughs> um, what's been going on is that finally Movement Five Stars and PD, um, so the anti-establishment movement and the centre-left party, look like they have come to um, an agreement to form a new coalition. Now, I say this, but this morning... Um, Prime Minister Conte, who's coming back to helm the new executive again... Um, looked like he was going to accept the mandate and they were going to be able to come up with a solid kind of shared programme. But over the course of the day, the latest is that Move and Five Stars is putting forward a lot of requests that may once again put the future of this coalition into disarray. So a few weeks after the the crisis first began, when the far-right party Lega called essentially for early elections, um, and after we thought that we had come to a proper new government, it may be all up in the air again. So shouldn't they at least put the coalition together before they start disassembling it? This this seems somewhat, um, I don't even know what the word is, on behalf of Five Star. Yeah, you'd think that. But we're quite used to U-turns, us Italians. Is it a U-turn or just basically doing an eternal 180-degree handbrake turn round and round in circles? <laughs> Pretty much, no. In, I think... in, in a little Fiat. <laughs> <laughs> they, they are very secure and steady cars, by the way. Uh, no, what I'm trying to say is that um, the Moving Five Stars may well be doing this as a bit of a kind of negotiation measure. They feel like they've got the power at the moment. They've obviously been able to get away with putting Conte at head of executive again. Um, 
And they're trying, they're constantly pulling and pulling and trying to get more ownership of this government over the their historic foes, the PD. So perhaps it's just a bluff. Um, Tom, to bring you in, if if we could move adroitly from the image of a a Fiat 500 doing eternal do- donuts on the forecourt of the Italian wherever this metaphor is going, <laughs> and think instead of the the British Rolls Royce parked by the side of the highway to Brexit with steam coming out of its bonnet and its wheels fallen off. And apologies to Rolls-Royce, who I know are extremely sensitive about allegories of this kind. Is it weird being British at the moment? Well, absolutely. And I think one of the funny things, and Kiara and I have joked about this in uh, the past few weeks, is that this idea of uh, you know, U-turns, donuts, call them what you want. Um, we associate with the sort of more fragmented, dynamic, fast-moving, fast-changing world of Italian post-war politics. That was a very tactful description of Italian post-war politics. I'm, I've had a lot of... Dynamic, I like that. I've had a lot of practice. <laughs> um, but now we're seeing exactly the same thing here. And as you say, that, that uh, British parliamentary Rolls-Royce is definitely up on bricks. Um, people are still playing fast and loose with the truth and with what they tell the public. But they're still more moved by party politics, uh, ideology, personal political expediency, so they think. And this is on the right and left in this country. Um, But it's a race to the bottom. And what at least encourages me slightly about what Chiara has been saying is that it looks like Italy maybe won't end up with a super right-wing government. What could have been the most right-wing government they've had since the war... But we could still end up with one if uh, a general election plays out with, in, in certain ways, should we have one before the 31st of October. Um, we could have the most right-wing administration we've ever had in this country's entire parliamentary history. And I just don't think we're, we're fully prepared for that purely on a domestic level. And that's before we even get into what happens next on the European stage. Chiara, do you get the sense that British people, because they are so used to living in a system which is usually fairly sensibly and placidly organised and things work pretty much as they're supposed to. Do you get the sense that a lot of British people haven't quite yet realised how very, very weird all this is getting? Completely. But one thing that I do think us Italians have in terms of edge and being able to get to, to dealing with these situations is that we are also aware of the fact that these ups and downs in politics are cyclical and that almost nothing is irreparable irreparable and we've seen you know Berlusconi's days and we've seen Salvini's days and now we're seeing this new coalition it feels like everything comes and everything goes and the chaos is continuous but the extremes eventually swing back so if there is one thing that we can learn from the Italian experience is that perhaps there is hope in the future well much as I'd like to agree with that what worries me is that the, the experience in this country is the opposite, you know, the entire post-war political period has been dominated by essentially the push for con- a consensual uh, ideology. And I know that's drifted of late. This is happening. We're seeing this race to the extremes. We're seeing huge jeopardy ahead. But the public aren't doing anything. This is the, the one thing I can't understand. If you look at, I don't know, Gilets jaunes movement in France, people were tearing the place to pieces no one's done anything. We had a mealy-mouthed protest in, is, is in that Whitehall not, that it, got commandeered by other, even more bonkers people on the margins. Everyone's it, just sitting back and watching it happen. Is that the gilet jaune, though, not itself just an expression of local political mores and culture? I mean, the, the French do tend to react like that if someone changes bin night. Well, yeah, but I think this is what we need a little bit of. And I just feel like 
because the stakes are so much higher, it does feel unprecedented. I can't look back even to industrial upheaval of the 70s and the three-day week and all this kind of thing. But look how angry people got. You know, people really took to the streets. It was violent. I'm not encouraging violence on the streets, but I, I just don't understand why there's such passivity from, and I'm including myself. You know, why am I not? Why am I sat here with you, Andrew? Why am I not? <laughs> why am I not running around outside Downing Street with a sandwich board? You know, shouting. Um, Malcolm, I'll, I'll bring you in at this point. Is the weirdness of this that, the, that a lot of the British public, those that have not followed Tom's lead and taken their pitchfork out of the shed and reported for duty in Whitehall? That British people are still thinking in that way, that it's all cyclical, that, you know, one side gets their turn, then the other side gets theirs, and that's fair enough, that's fine. Because the thing about Brexit, if it happens, this is not cyclical. There is not a way back from this, at least not for probably about another 20 years, at which time we get to the inevitable and somewhat amusing punchline of all this, which is Britain begging to rejoin the EU and being forced to accept both the euro and Schengen uh, as, as a consequence. I think the issue is that the threat is still very much sort of metaphysical and on the horizon. You know, nothing physically tangible has happened that will make you go, oh, my Lord, my life has drastically changed. I have to get on the streets and protest. The general public is still following this very incongruous sort of torturous legal battle, political battle. It's hard to keep track of it. It's hard to say specifically what it is that you're angry about to then get yourself onto the streets. That's my thinking. Um, But... And also no one knows what will happen with Brexit. We all know that it'll be bad, but no one can say we must stop exactly this happening to our lives. and We must get into the streets. Uh, it's hard to sort of motivate yourself to get out there. Uh, just as a final thought on this subject before we move on, Chiara, I, I was wondering if, speaking as an Italian, as of course you do, uh, if there was any advice you could pass on to our British listeners about how to cope with living amid a political system that was uh, disintegrating. <laughs> not, to put, not, not to put too fine a point on it I mean I think not to go back to Tom's point but there's definitely more of a um, tradition of kind of social upheaval in Italy that definitely I've not encountered here in the UK and another thing that is very strong and it's only a little thing maybe I'm saying it because I'm the culture editor so I like to look at kind of cultural output but we are really strong at satire and satire is not a thing that we see enough of here in the UK we just need to do more lambasting more lampooning um, to bring more people into um, the kind of pop culture debate and then maybe the, the pop culture political debate and then maybe they will feel that um, urge to take to the streets because the, this debate about Brexit is so dry and impossible to get yourself into. Somebody needs to break it down for people to understand and to feel engaged about. I suspect the next couple of months are going to serve up with service with bounteous uh, raw material uh, for satire. Uh, with that happy thought in mind, we will move on slightly uh, and look at Russia. Now, the notion of prisoner swaps involving Russia tends to evoke Cold War imagery of men in trench coats emerging from Mercedes Benzes and Moskvitches on respective sides of a fog shrouded checkpoint before barricades are anxiously raised and the freed spooks are returned to their handlers. But we may shortly be treated to a more 
contemporary variant. Ukraine and Russia are reported or have been reported or maybe actually negotiating an exchange of prisoners taken by both countries during Russia's occupation of portions of Ukraine. Uh, This includes the 24 Ukrainian sailors seized by Russia in November last year. Um, Melkin, this is a fast-moving story uh, and a somewhat opaque one. Do we actually know for sure if anybody is being freed or anybody's talking about freeing anybody? Well, here's the great thing. There are so many different reports out there. <laughs> so I, the, so, the, so basically anything you say is probably going to be right. It's all lies. Okay, the, the, excellent. The, Ukraine's uh, prosecutor general posted uh, on Facebook saying that the swap has happened. Then the president said that there's a lot of misinformation and people shouldn't believe what they're hearing. Then they're that's, report- that's always nice to hear from a head of state. Exactly. <laughs> then they said, no, it hasn't happened. Then someone said it has happened. Then there was a list of names revealed. Then they said, well, actually, the person that's supposed to be released today is still in the Arctic. So we don't know when it's, it's definitely not happening today. Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, said it's not going to happen today. The process is still ongoing. It'll probably be over the weekend. But can I just preface with the fact that it probably will happen and it's good news. So at the beginning of the week, there was a conversation that 30 odd for 30 odd prisoners will be released. Prisoners of conscience and some military prisoners. Uh, and then someone said it's not happening. Then it's back on the table. And then suddenly they just went in with the VIPs. So they released the head of RIA Novosti mm-hmm. in Ukraine, uh, Kirill Vyshinsky, who came out on Wednesday. And he's in Ukraine now. Um, and then Oleg Sentsov, the Crimean filmmaker who went on a 140-something day hunger strike after being sentenced to 20 years in the Arctic, was moved to Moscow. Again, there are contradictory reports, but it's most likely that he is, he is in Moscow. And the Ukrainian sailors that were arrested off the coast of Crimea in, I believe it was November 2018, they are also on the list and likely to be released. So it's all good news, but there's just a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, it is all good news, and even if it's unclear quite how good it is. But if, if we look at that good news more broadly, the fact that Russia and Ukraine are talking to each other and working together towards a mutually beneficial end, how wildly optimistic is it wise to get about that? Well, I mean, Russia's not only going to turn around and be like, "Oh, brother, where art thou?" <laughs> you know, they, they yeah, we, we've changed our mind, lads. Here's Crimea back. Sorry for the misunderstanding. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they they still don't get along, and it's very difficult to understand where the sort of unmoved mover is, who initiated this entire process. Vladimir Zelensky has taken personal initiative and has made it as sort of like a milestone of his first. Um, you know, a few months in in office to make this happen. Um, I imagine that it will then pave the way for some sort of discussions about ending skirmishes in eastern Ukraine, which is still ongoing, and it'll encourage other members of the international community to get involved and mediate. So it'll it'll spark the potential for something, but it absolutely won't resolve all the issues between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Kiara, it is clearly your day for providing learned counsel to the, the citizens, and indeed, it's about to be presidents of other nations. It's just that, as an Italian, uh, you, you do have a certain amount of experience of being governed by comedians, uh, some professional, some accidental. Uh, Ukraine is, of course, itself now in that position. It has recently elected an actual TV comedian, indeed, a satirist, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, president. Mind you, one could argue that Britain's done more or less the same. But uh, Zelensky will shortly be meeting Vladimir Putin for the first time, not a man renowned uh, for an expansive sense of humour. 
What does he need to do, Zelensky, especially around that meeting to establish himself as an actually serious head of an actually serious country? Well, it's interesting. If you take Grillo's example, um, A, Grillo was never actually fronting in kind of official terms the, the, the movement. He was always acting behind the scenes, and which is pro- possibly and probably the reason why he's been able to maintain some degree of that satirist persona, because... Of all the people who are fronting the movement Five Stars that has been founded by a comedian, none is particularly funny, with all due respect to Luigi Di Maio, who may be funny, you know, unwittingly so. Um, I think you must necessarily drop a little bit of that persona uh, when you encounter office and the movement for stars has really kind of normalized itself when you think about Berlusconi, though, he wasn't a comedian, but he brought so much of that undercutting kind of quite crass humour to a lot of international meetings and it never really did him any favours, I don't think. Uh, Tom, is is it possible that Vladimir Putin perceives this as an opportune moment to impersonate the good cop, however briefly? Well, yeah, I think, and there's quite a few narratives. It was interesting this week that you had, well, at the start of, at the, start of the week, tr- Donald Trump suggesting that Russia should, you know, we should be back to the G8 and integrate Putin again and that was met with a stony silence or, or outright cries of displeasure from the, <laughs> from, from the other six stakeholders. Um, I, we've always said this about Putin. He's a pretty canny political operator. He's a genuinely excellent political opportunist. Notwithstanding that, though, I kind of agree with what Melcon said. I think any dialogue is positive. There's a measurable gain here. If we go back to the, you know, the prisoner swap, I think it's it seems to be expedient. I think it's something to be welcomed. We're, the stuff we've been talking about earlier highlights the risk of not having proper dialogue, not getting around the table and doing things properly, even if everyone is playing the long game. If there's short-term benefits, why not enjoy them? Uh, I just want to go back very briefly on this before we take a short break, Melkin, to where we came in, which is the bulk of the Ukrainian prisoners at the heart of this, the 24 sailors. Uh, As you pointed out, they were seized in November last year, weirdly because the world has gone mad and I've lost all sense of time. I felt like that was something that happened a few weeks ago. How weird is it that Russia just lifted 24 Ukrainian sailors off their ships nearly a year ago uh, and just hasn't given them back? Well, not as weird as seizing Crimea, and you know, if all acts are relative. That's <laughs> you, pretty minor. You you do make a fair point. It is very strange, but again, nothing is beyond Russia, and I think they simply kept these prisoners under wraps so well that everyone forgot about them. And um, I don't think the international community will make a big sort of kerfuffle about them being released. Um, they will be more concerned with the VIP prisoner of conscience uh, prisoners who are released alongside them. Okay, you're listening to Monocle's House View. We're going to take a short break now. In a moment, a reminiscence of the Britpop Wars. (laughs) 
This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. It is 25 years ago that Oasis released Definitely Maybe, an album about which the best and the worst thing was that it sounded like it had been recorded 25 years before that. It became the fastest-selling debut album in British history and rocketed Oasis to superstardom. At the start of 1994, they were the kind of band that blasé music journalists ignored when they were playing in the room next door at the Water Rats in King's Cross. And I wonder why my memoir didn't sell. By the end of the same year, Oasis were headlining arenas around the world en route to stadiums. Here is more from Monocle's senior editor, Rob Bound. Twenty-five years ago this week, Oasis released Definitely Maybe, an album that's been described as seminal and visceral more times than bad boy band-leading brothers Noel and Liam Gallagher have used the F-word in interviews or smoked, back then anyway, packs of Benson and Hedges. Today is gonna be the day that they're gonna throw it back to you. By now you should have somehow realised The Oasis debut became the UK's fastest-selling album until 2006, sparked into life by three great singles, genuine rock and roll attitude and a campaign of belligerent band-baiting in interviews. What do you think of Blur these days? What? Not a lot. Yeah, I'm not in competition anymore with a Blur and that. British Blur, you know what I mean? It took them five years to get number one, right? It took us fucking 12 months, yeah? I bought Definitely Maybe sometime that month, and as a nice boy from Sussex at school in leafy Surrey, mad, bad, dangerous-to-know Mancunian oasis were a thrill like nothing else, equally intimidating and enthralling. Music was tribal. Bands and their fans were gangs. People that liked Blur were dicks. People that liked Suede, ponces. And people that liked Pulp were artists, or something equally unforgivably fey. American music simply didn't exist anymore for a 15-year-old in Britain. The 41-year-old writing this is not as ashamed of that dumb partisanship as you might think. Music meant more because we had to buy it. Colours were nailed to masts. Sleeve notes poured over, lyrics, inflections, hairstyles and walks practised in mirrors. We used to swagger around the 16th century quad at school, flicking V signs at each other for God's sake. Actually, that is embarrassing. But the point stands, and I miss this. We all like a bit of Taylor Swift and Stormzy in the weekend, but what do we love and how do we show it? Tribalism's awful, right? Right. But I miss it. For Monocle, I'm Robert Bound. And here now is Rob Bound, who joins me and Tom Edwards. Kiara and Malkin have been compelled to leave on the grounds that I don't think either of them were born when this album came out. So who's interested yeah. in what they have to say about it? Uh, and, and before anybody writes in, yes, we do know that we have illustrated a piece about Definitely Maybe with two tracks there from its follow-up album, What's the Story, Morning Glory. Uh, <laughs> Oops. <laughs> never, nevertheless, um, Definitely Maybe, 25 years, wow. And yes, I was that journalist who ignored them from the room next door. Oh, right, yeah, I thought you might have yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the class. Uh, but, but it would be, of course, remiss of me, not least because I have several boxes worth of it at home, that that memoir of the period, called It's Too Late to Die Young Now, is I available. I loved it, Andrew. I love well, your memoir. Well, thank you very much. Is, 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 is 
there's there's still a few left. It's available <laughs> in all good remainder bookshops. <laughs> I didn't realise. Yeah, there's, there's still a few left. Did you get qu- the... qu- quite a few, in fact? Um, I referring back to her last story about the 24 Ukrainian sailors on the musical <laughs> tip. That does sound like an apocryphal story about Mark Ullman. Um, <laughs> Um, anyway, oh, so, dear, oh dear. it's a family program. We, 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 I didn't say what it was about. We were, succe- we were successfully maintaining a certain tone before yeah. you turned up here, Rob. <laughs> um, to bring us back to the, the subject theoretically at hand, which is the way that definitely maybe and Oasis pro- polarised and tribalised uh, music in the mid-90s, and yeah. they did. There was a sense, because I was at the time working for a music magazine, the late lamented Melody Maker, which was it wasn't so much on the front line of the Britpop wars it was I think the front line uh, well, of the Britpop I've wars finished, we, we, we um, were a key battlefield you were indeed I think your your kind of Kitchener maybe your Hitler was um, was Steve Sutherland and he I've just finished Brett Anderson the <laughs> founder of Suede um, who were kind of the pre-Britpop band. In his second half of his memoir, he talks about how the pressure, the sort of media pressure on him uh, and didn't consider his band as part of Britpop, but they got swept up in it and the battles thereof. They, the they of were it. the unwitting and unwilling sentinels, yeah. forerunners, pathfinders, yeah. And he and says so that Steve, your, your esteemed editor... Uh, assistant editor, in assistant, oh, was he? And Steve Sutherland was... He sort of, he wrote some editorial before they'd even had a single out, saying we, they're the best new band in the world or something. We put them on the cover yeah. uh, on the strength of a demo tape. Uh, my contribution to that was, and I apologise to Swade for any effect on their subsequent lives this may have had, we were going to put them on the cover. The original headline on the cover was the best new band in Britain, question mark. At which point I wandered past the production desk and thought, look, seriously, if we're going to do this, yeah. go big. And there is also that old joke about how the answer to any newspaper headline that ends in a question mark is no. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. so I just said, look, let, let, if we're going to say it, say it. So my contribution to that infamous front cover was removing the question mark. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, that's why when you flick to the end of the index of Brett Anderson's memoir, it's just got Muller, Andrew, Death Threat. The other thing I later did the other thing I later did that bedeviled Swade was I, I interviewed them for Melody Maker before I was about to leave uh, the United Kingdom for what I thought was going to be an extremely protracted period. Yeah. Um, and uh, Matt Osman, their bass player, made the unwise remark that God, I could put anything in this story and and, <laughs> and they'd have no way of catching up with me. So I mentioned in the piece, because I, I interviewed them at the house they were both sharing at the time, and I did mention that they shared this house with a, a baby goat named Kevin. Um, and, and when I bumped into Matt several months later, he sort of... Uh, belaboured me about the European promo tour they'd done just after that. Everyone asking questions. <laughs> Everyone asking them questions <laughs> about their goat. <laughs> um, it's good stuff. Named after a Manic Street Preachers song, possibly. So the Britpop Wars, Andrew. Yes. Uh, you, and which, 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 which tribe were you, Rob? Well, I were, were, were you were you a dick or a ponce or, or, an, <laughs> or an artist? Or I, an was, artist. I was a ponce. Um, okay. But I loved Oasis as well, um, and it's very difficult. It's one of those things where you can't support two teams from the same city, or even a, t- a team in the same two teams in the same league. But Swade kind of beguiled me from their first single. Maybe that first, a, maybe that first um, edition of uh, that, that first cover of the Melody Maker. Um, and that's a fantastic debut record. But uh, the, I, I remember buying the energy coming off off Oasis in that debut album was incredible. It's Those three record. fantastic singles, the attitude, the swagger uh, was, as I say, I mean, in, in that uh, in that piece we just played, that tape we just played. I was a fifteen year old schoolboy at boarding school in Surrey, and yet so these, <laughs> these guys seemed so you, unbelievable. Imagine the scenes, dear listeners. Yeah, yeah. So, so <laughs> you, you were very much Oasis. 
Oasis as natural core audience. That's, oh. I think that's very much the kind of person they hoped they were reaching. Yeah, like Man United fans. Yeah, know, exactly. Man City fans. Yeah. Tom, Tom, which which tribe were you? Were you wearing a was, Manchester City uh, well, shirt no, and one of those probably, stupid hats? I was probably and... a bit of a halfway house punts. Okay. <laughs> what I find interesting, though, and we've had this conversation before, Andrew, you and I around this table about the degree of fame enjoyed by people in that sort of critical period through mm. the 50s and 60s. Was this tribalism, Rob, possible because it had its physical manifestation? It wasn't just the clothes, of course, you can still do that with an Instagram story or whatever. Yeah. But there was, you mentioned in the piece that you wrote in a minute about buying the album and having the cover art and it's because there was these physical things you could own you could buy in more yeah. well you had that, to is you that, had very is limited kind now? of yeah you had very limited literature on it you had the weekly music press and you had posters and sleeve notes and stuff like that whether you were buying it on tape or cd or whatever it was but there was there was a limited amount of stuff you couldn't reel through endless photographs of mm. the lead singer or whatever on the internet or uh, their instagram account or look up how he and his brother have been fighting on twitter you couldn't you, you see could, any of that you it was very limited you couldn't stuff. interact with them directly so they yeah. perhaps seemed more remote and mysterious yeah nay godlike creatures yeah uh, we should talk about the absolute key pitched battle of the Britpop wars which was the weekend uh, that blur and oasis went up against each other for the straight in at number one spot mm. uh, both bands with arguably the worst single either on their, of on their albums ever released yeah, yeah. um that was between uh blur's weird bonzo dog doodah band pastiche country house and oasis's status quo impression roll with it <laughs> uh, we have a short blast a mercifully short blast in fact uh, of of each of them uh here is one of them So it was Country House by Blur and Roll With It by Oasis. Rivals at one point for the number one. Can either of you, without looking it up, name confidently which of those won the battle? Country House. It was. Yeah, I do I do remember that. Uh, Oasis should have released Some Might Say, which is a great song and the best single off that album. Right? Just before we finish, I do want to ask each of you just to pick... If there's one album of that entire Britpop period that you would recommend to impressionable younger generations who may be listening to us as a suggestion that the mid-90s weren't all terrible, what would you pick? I'd give them Dogman Star, Suede's second album, which I think is a fantastic it is. record. Sound. The best of the, best of the decade. Preposterous and magnificent. Yeah. Tom? Oh, God. Um, maybe, anyway. mo- maybe Modern Life is Rubbish by Blur, um, because it has a nice locomotive on the front of it. Okay. Oh, that's good. So that's, uh, my, that's my era. Andrew, what's your pick? My, my pick is the niche choice as the unwitting, unwilling harbinger of the whole thing, New Wave by the auteurs. Uh, oh, yeah. And, okay. and on that subject, I do recommend to anybody wishing to read a reminiscence of that period other than my own, uh, Luke Haynes's book, Bad Vibes, um, is, I will grudgingly concede, funnier than mine. Um, <laughs> that does get us to the end of, of Monocle's House View. Uh, Rob Bound and Tom Edwards, thank you both for joining me. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache. Our studio managers were Sam Impey and May Lee Evans. The House View returns on Monday at 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. Thank you.